Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Amber. Good morning, everyone. My name's Lane. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, good morning and blessed Advent, everyone. Uh, this Sunday marks the first day of Advent, which is uh, a word which simply means arrival. This is a 40-day period leading up to Christmas Day, which is, of course, the day the church elected to honor the birth of Jesus the Messiah. And during this time, the church purposefully places itself in a posture of waiting. The messianic promise this idea that someone would come along to deliver Israel into freedom from its enemies and establish dominion over all the nations of the earth, bringing peace to the world. This was something that the, the Hebrew people waited a long time for. And even when the Messiah did arrive, he came in a way that was altogether unexpected and established realities that are far beyond what they could have hoped or imagined. So we're carrying over our series called The Upside-Down Kingdom into Advent as we explore the nature of this unorthodox king who reigns over this upside-down kingdom. And specifically, we're going to be dipping our toe into the messianic promises found in the prophet Isaiah, uh, recognizing what the Jews were waiting for and what Jesus brought to the world. And I say dipping our toe because really, we could spend a whole year in Isaiah and barely be scratching the surface. But hopefully, these next few weeks will give us kind of a framework uh, by which we can see the hope of the Messiah found in these prophecies spoken seven centuries before Jesus came to Bethlehem. Now, traditionally, uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas are characterized by four themes of the gospel. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And each week we're going to be drawing one of these themes out of the prophet Isaiah and lighting a candle to signify how Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Uh, today, we're talking about peace. Peace. In the passage that Amber read this morning, the Messiah, the people of, of Israel, the, 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 the way they've been waiting for, um, he will have several names, right? And one of them, the most prominent one among them, is Prince of 
peace. Prince of Peace. I've been a little overwhelmed recently. I don't know if it's any one particular thing or just a bunch of things combined, but I've been able to recognize a little bit of turbulence, a little bit of chaos uh, in my own heart and mind. And even if you're not in a place like that right now, I'm sure uh, all of you can remember a time recently when you did feel that way. Last week, we closed out our uh, series in uh, our teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically closing this passage where Jesus, he encourages his disciples to build their lives upon him, upon his love and his wisdom and his instruction, so that when the storms of life rage and beat against the house, that we will find ourselves firmly established in his promises and in his peace, and that we will not fall to ruin. But sometimes I like to build my life on other things. I like, maybe want to put these parts of my life on Jesus, and that's cool, but these parts of my life over here, I want to build my own way, on my own foundations. And that's when the storms of life that come in the forms of stress and loss and chaos and temptation, when they hit us, that's when we realize when our house is shaken, that we've perhaps not built our lives on Christ as much as we think we have. That we're perhaps not as firmly established in Christ as we think we are. Our world desperately needs peace. And Christ's church should have peace in abundance. When the world is swirling in conflict and in strife and pain and disease and destruction and sin, the world should be able to look to Christ's church and see a peace that makes no sense. Not an indifference, not an arrogance, not a numbness, but a peace which remains unmoved by the chaos around us. And as we're going to unpack in the scriptures, not only a peace that we experience for ourselves, but peace that Christ establishes on the earth in partnership with you and me. Peace is something that intrinsically all of us deeply long for. I don't know if it's still this way, but a long cliche uh, uh, from the Miss America pageant, right, in the interviews, what's the one thing that they all needed to say they wanted above all else? World peace, right? Uh, At least that's what I learned uh, from the Miss America pageant from watching Miss Congeniality. So (laughs) that's all I know. It's as far as my expertise extends, so whatever. I don't think if you ask anyone deep down, I don't think anyone would say that they don't want peace, right? But the issue is that a lot of the time we want peace on our own terms, right? Like very rarely are we willing to compromise what peace means to us in order that someone else have peace. We all want peace, at least until that peace costs us something that is too important to us, until peace is too expensive. We, we live in this world which is kind of fueled by a scarcity mindset, Right? It basically means like we feel like there's not enough to go around, not enough of anything. And, this, and, and uh, this is true when it comes to peace as well. If one person has peace, it must mean that another person doesn't. And this is what causes conflict between human beings. This is what causes uh, 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 war. This is what causes uh, relationships to fall apart. And this is why we need someone who is able to bring about a peace in a way that no one else could. This is why we need a Messiah who is able to establish peace in ways beyond our human ability. But in order for us to experience this true peace, in order to take part in, a, in helping God establish that peace in our world, 
we need to be willing to relinquish our personal definitions and parameters around peace, our scarcity-driven assumptions regarding peace, that if we want peace which comes only from God, there is something that the Lord asks of us. And it's all over Isaiah, it's all over the scriptures. He asks us to humble ourselves. My brothers and sisters, from the most volatile global conflicts to the most intimate personal wounds of relationship, we have to be willing to admit that our way doesn't work. We live in a time of great division and animosity. And there's no way we're going to be able to experience the peace of God if we don't humble ourselves. There's plenty of pride. There's plenty of arrogance. There's plenty of condescension. Our world has that in abundance. If we want peace, if we want to embody the peace that Christ gives us, it's going to require humility. So today, we're going to look to where that true peace comes from. It comes from the God who has it in his name. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ, our Lord, King Jesus, our Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you fall afresh on us this morning, that you fill this room, that you fill the hearts and minds of everyone here. God, we thank you for the unexpected and upside-down way in which you save the world. And we ask that you would guide us in all wisdom as we learn to be more like you and to be shaped by your love. Would you give us your perfect peace? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start by providing a little context for what the book of Isaiah even is, who Isaiah was, and what was going on during the time that this was written. Today's message is going to be a bit more of a setup for what is coming throughout the rest of Advent. Pastors Brett and Kate and myself are going to continue in this series teaching out of Isaiah. Uh, So hang with me because it's going to get a little historical. It's going to get a little technical, but I believe in you and we can do this, okay? Now, the book of Isaiah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. We have 17 uh, major and minor prophets, and the major prophets aren't like major because they're more important than the minor prophets. They're just larger. Isaiah is 66 chapters long, and the longest of the minor prophets is only 14 chapters long, Zechariah. So, and then what makes a, a book prophetic is that it was written by one of the prophets. Um, a prophet was an appointed office in the leadership structure of ancient Israel. Before Israel had kings, they had these leaders called judges, which were kind of military and uh, uh, justice-oriented leaders in their society. And then they transitioned to more of a monarchy where they have more of a traditional king. Uh, And then you had the priests and the high priest. These were the people that facilitated worship of Yahweh in the tabernacle and in the temple, right? So they were more um, mankind's representative uh, to God. And then you had the prophet. And the prophet was a person who was anointed by the Spirit of God to speak for him, in in some ways to represent his will in the governance of uh, God's people. And the prophet often had a role of calling people back to covenant faithfulness. And because of this, they were often very unpopular 
because they would call out the sinful practices and the idolatry and the corruption within God's covenant people, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn back to God. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says they're going to persecute you like they persecuted the prophets who were before you because speaking truth is not popular. When we hear the word prophet, I think sometimes our brain will jump to like a fortune teller, right? Somebody who can give us some insider information into our future with the help of their crystal ball. And um, now there are elements within prophecy that are future oriented. This is absolutely true. But these works were presented to the people in order to call them into action, right then and right there. These were deeply contextual works of biblical literature that were designed to speak to the people of their day, right? So prophetic, sometimes we use the word apocalyptic literature. It's not necessarily about having insider information about the future, just so we know how the movie ends. It's, it's prophetic and apocalyptic literature is, is always supposed to have a right here, right now implication in our lives um, to the people reading it. When we hear the word apocalypse even, that word doesn't necessarily mean the end, as we've come to know it. Really, really, what apocalypse really translates to is the revelation. This is why we call the book of Revelation the book of Revelation. It's more about revealing. It's about a great exposure. And the prophets, um, they often served in the service of the kings, right, as providing counsel, insight, and wisdom into God's will and desire for the people of Israel. And the problem is that the kings at the time didn't always listen to the prophets. And that's why we get into all sorts of trouble. And what's interesting is that all of these major and minor prophets, they're thought to have been written sometime uh, uh, in, this, in this period of history where the Hebrew government was in all kinds of turmoil. They're believed to have been written all between the 8th and the 5th century BCE. During this 400-year stretch, Israel was um, split into two kingdoms, right? We had the northern kingdom, uh, and we, it called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And uh, at this time that Isaiah is beginning his writings, the Assyrian Empire has invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, and they've laid siege to, to Judah. So there's military conflict happening. Now, fast forward a little bit. The Babylonians come along. They conquer the Assyrians, and then they conquer the rest of Judah, and that began an era that we call the exile, right, or the Babylonian exile. We talk about this all the time. This is where the Jews were forced to abandon their homes, forced to abandon Jerusalem, and to settle in a foreign land, and kind of they're displaced from their culture, from their traditions, from their worship. And then the Persians came along, and they conquered the Babylonians, and they allowed some of the Jews to go back and reestablish their temple. This is where we have the events of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they go back and they try to rebuild their culture, rebuild the walls, and open back up the scriptures. We call this the post-exilic period. Say post-exilic. Scholars, all of you. And then the Greeks came, and they conquered the Persians. And this is where we have the events that took place in the movie 300, the Battle of Thermopylae, right? This is Sparta. George Butler was there. You know, Okay. And then the Greeks have all these civil conflicts, and they get split up into a bunch of little empires, and one called the Greek Seleucid Empire controls Jerusalem now. And then the Romans come along, and they conquer the Seleucids, and then about 150 years after that, we get Jesus. Are you guys still with me? <laughs> Man, alive. Like, what political chaos, right? For this whole time, the prophets are writing these works of prophecy. The Hebrew people are getting conquered and displaced. Every couple of centuries, there's some new world superpower that comes along and tramples all over, supposedly, God's chosen people. So the questions that the prophets are wrestling with are ones of lament and grief and repentance and punishment. 
You know, in the Hebrew imagination, the sea, the ocean, was this symbol of political and moral chaos in the world. Um, you know, traveling by boat in this area, it was very risky. There were whole seasons of the year where they just didn't do it because it was too dangerous. Ships would often be upturned and blown about by storms, and uh, you had about a two-thirds chance of making it to where you wanted to go. The sea represented chaos, and God was seen as a God of order. Now, some of us hear this word order, and we might kind of feel like that's restrictive. Like, I don't want to be ordered. Like, I don't want to be commanded what to do. But the ancient Hebrew who had been tossed about and toppled like a boat on the, shore, on, the, on the stormy seas by all these military leaders and all this immorality and pagan culture, they would not have seen the order of God this way. The order of God wouldn't have seemed restrictive. It would have felt like salvation. Right? Even in the Genesis story, we see that the Spirit of God comes and hovers over the chaos of the deep, broods over the stirring of the waters and brings peace and order. When we think back of the story of Jesus on the boat with his disciples, right? And there's a storm that happens, and the disciples are terrified that they're going to drown. And then Jesus wakes up with perfect tranquility from the nap he's been taking during the storm, and he speaks to the storm, and it stops. And this is when the disciples are looking at each other, and they're like, maybe this guy is a lot more than a teacher. Because this symbolism wouldn't have been lost on them, right? As they stood on that boat, drenched in the storm waters that had almost killed them seconds earlier, I have to wonder if they looked up at Jesus and remembered these words from Isaiah, Prince of Peace. We'll come back to that. So Isaiah is writing towards the early part of this turbulent history during the Assyrian conquest and, and, and uh, siege. And Isaiah specifically is a book that is hyperlinked all over the scriptures. Like there's references to it everywhere, especially in Revelation. And Isaiah himself is regarded as one of the most revered figures and prophets in biblical history. And the, the scroll of Isaiah, it's broken up into three distinct sections. Each one is addressing a different period of Israel's history, um, or spanning roughly 400 years. Now, Remember, scholars hotly debate everything, and they also hotly debate who wrote the book of Isaiah. They all agree that the first section was definitely written by the first prophet, Isaiah. But there's some controversy around whether or not the rest of the book was written by disciples who were writing in the tradition and in the theology of Isaiah, or as their period of history went on, or if Isaiah really did have prophecy and, uh, of course he had prophecy, but saw into the future 400 years and wrote about all that on his own. I know what I think, but at the end of the day, what matters is that God was speaking to his people through these scrolls. And I think that the God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, wants to use these same works to speak to us. Whew. That was a lot of history and context. Are we doing okay? Are you still with me? If you are asleep, it's okay. Rest in the Lord. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We're okay with this. <laughs> At the 8 a.m. service last week, I started seeing some of this. I choose to believe that it was the turkey <laughs> and not my boring sermon. So, uh, when we read chapter 9 of Isaiah, we often hear this passage in the context of Christmas time, right? It's really nice. It's full of optimism and hope. Those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. A child is born to us. Yay! But we fail to recognize a lot of the time that Isaiah has just spent the better part of eight chapters kicking Israel's butt. 
He spent the whole first section calling out the idolatry and the immorality and the injustice of God's people. He is, on God's behalf, outraged and appalled at their behavior. Now, in order to understand why he's so enraged, we have to uh, understand the culture of covenant. Okay, in the ancient Near East, covenants were very, very important. And God establishes a series of covenants with Israel through Abraham and through Moses, right? So the kind of covenant that Yahweh established with his people was one that already existed. We see God doing this a lot where he uses the language that already existed in the culture and then he tweaks it a bit to reveal how he is a God who is set apart from the pagans around them. This covenant that he establishes is called a suzerain vassal treaty. Say this with me. Suzerain vassal treaty. You guys are scholars. I love it. And don't let those words scare you. Basically, it's a legal agreement. The suzerain is the superpower. They had all the military might, the resources, and the influence in the area. And um, the vassal state was usually the weaker uh, nation. Um, And the covenant treaty between them was basically one of mutual protection and provision. Uh, So basically, your army fights for my government. But in return, if somebody attacks you, I'll protect you. Your goods and your crops are all taxed by me, but I'll make sure that you have access to certain building materials or whatever, right? So God establishes himself as the suzerain, and this is why God is often referred to in the Old Testament as the God of armies. Sorry, the Old Testament as the God of armies. We even see that in this passage, or the God of hosts. And he established Israel as the one and only vassal state. So God creates a covenant with them, and says, I'll be your suzerain, I'll protect you and provide for you, etc. And here are the ways in which I expect you to be faithful to me. Covenants had these stipulations. They were a legal binding agreement. And if you broke the terms of the covenant, that wouldn't be good. If you wanted to, to continue getting the benefits from this covenant, you had to keep it. You had to keep the stipulations. And if you wanted the, the suzerain to come down on you, you would break the covenant. Um, each covenant had these sections of blessings and woes. You do this and good things will happen. You do this and bad things will happen. But then God establishes this with his people. But he did something which was not common for the suzerain powers of the time. And he adds this repentance clause. You can read about it specifically in, in Leviticus chapter 26. He says, Do this and good things will happen. Do this and bad things will happen. But in your rebellion, if you repent from your ways and you return to covenant faithfulness, I will have mercy on you and forgive you. This was unique. This was unique to God and the Hebrew people. And this is why prophets like Isaiah were so harsh on Israel during these political times of turmoil, because the implication is basically, hey guys, stop breaking covenant. Stop worshiping false gods. Stop consulting mediums and sorcerers. Stop neglecting the poor and the orphan. Stop being unfaithful to Yahweh, because this is what's happening. In the middle of Israel being divided, in the middle of all this military conflict, they are compromising their values and their worship, and they're going to all these other gods, bringing on the practices of the world. Isaiah's like, stop doing that, because if you keep doing it, Yahweh is going to use the other nations to punish us. If we start acting like them, we're going to suffer like them. But what's interesting is that there's this vision that Isaiah has just a few chapters earlier in chapter 6. 
Right, he's in the temple, right? We've heard this imagery a lot. He's in the temple. The presence of God fills the temple. And he's in awe, but he's also terrified. He's freaking out because he knows he comes from a rebellious people. And he says, woe to me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. But then something happens. An angel of the Lord comes from Yahweh with a hot coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And purifies him. The angel says this, Now, this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. When we rebel against God, God doesn't require that we repay to him all that we've taken, right? That we compensate him for the breach in our agreement, which is what a normal suzerain would do. That we pay back the debt we owe. Because honestly, nothing we could ever do would be enough to pay back that debt. There's too much red in that ledger. The chaos is too deep. Instead, all God requires of us is that we humble ourselves, that we repent, and that we turn back to him. And when we do, it's like we start over. It's like we're born again. See what I did there? Like the hot coal in Isaiah 6, we see Jesus going to the unclean and the sinful and the pariah And he's healing them, he's forgiving them, he's purifying them, he's making them whole. And all that he asks us to do is to humble ourselves, and we're made new. And this is why in the middle of this prophetic spanking that he's giving Israel, he receives this message of hope for the people. Yes, in our rebellion that we bring upon ourselves uh, a deep darkness sometimes, right? When we rebel against God and we we abandon ourselves to the chaos of the sea, But if we humble ourselves, if we repent and turn back to him, he removes that sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And we begin again in him. You see, this passage in chapter 9 is being addressed to the people that are living specifically in the northern territories, which is where the Assyrians are currently occupying that land. And earlier, he writes about how this turmoil is kind of their fault, that their doom was one of their own making because of their rebellion against Yahweh. But then he talks about this future where no longer will the people of Israel walk in a land of deep darkness, but they will see a great light. He talks about how all this turmoil of war and conquest will be no more, that the yoke of oppression will be broken. And he talks about how this deliverance is going to come from a child, a child who is born to them, someone from the line of Yahweh, who will, or sorry, from the line of David, who will liberate God's people and establish, they say, the government's on his shoulders. And this is where we see this kind of recurring theme of the messianic promise in the prophets. There's this hope of a savior, this person, who is going to come and rescue God's people, establish his throne over the whole earth, and, and someone who comes from the line of David. And this is, the reason why it's someone who comes from the line of David is because David, um, despite all of his flaws and shortcomings, he represented sort of a romantic time to the Hebrew people where they were still united, where they were experiencing all this military victory over their foes. All 12 tribes lived as one nation, and they haven't seen this in a while. So this was important, that God would kind of restore and redeem what's been broken. And this is why in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this lineage traced back from Joseph's house all the way back to the line of David to fulfill this prophecy. And the central title of this messianic figure in Isaiah 9 is the Prince of of peace. This word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom 
was everything to the Hebrew people. It was so much more than just like the absence of feeling anxious, right? Like, oh yeah, I feel at peace. No, shalom signified this state of perfect harmony between all living things, between humans and God, between all of creation. It was a ceasing. It was an ending of all conflict and war and turbulence, right? And this is the kind of gift that Christ wants to give the world. This is the kind of gift that Christ wants to give us, that we experience this kind of peace, that the turbulence and chaos within us would cease, that in the same way the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos of the waters in Genesis, that same Holy Spirit is given to each of us, and he hovers over the chaos of our hearts and our minds, and he brings peace to the turbulence. This is the only way that the world will get to experience that peace, is if we receive it. We know the world needs peace, and there's this hope for peace that is both personal and universal. And sometimes the peace that we're not experiencing is our fault. (laughs) We've been rebelling against God. We've not really humbled ourselves to submit ourselves to everything he wants to do in us. We're trying to wrestle control away. And when we do that, we end up creating a life around us which is not actually built on him. So when the storms of life come, we find ourselves shaken. But he tells us, if we humble ourselves, if we seek his face and we return from our wicked ways, that he will heal us. That's what he promises. Now what this could sound like is if bad things are happening to me, it's because I've disappointed God. And I want you to hear me. That is not what I'm saying at all. Look at Job. Job was described as someone who was literally faultless before God, completely faithful to Yahweh, and all the worst things in the world happened to him. We know that life is not this cut and dry. But sometimes the difficult storms that are happening into our lives, we do that to ourselves, right? It's like if I get a stomach ache or I get sick, Sometimes that happens to me because the person didn't prepare my food properly and I get food poisoning. Happens to me like once a year. You didn't need to know that, but it's true. (laughs) Lane, are you okay? Um, Another reason could be that I start filling my stomach with sugar or caffeine or I eat things that I know I'm allergic to. (laughs) Right? Sometimes the storms in our lives are things that we do to ourselves. And if we want to experience peace, we can't expect to receive the peace of God and remain in our rebellion. Those are the prophet's words. If we want to experience the peace of God, it requires repentance. It requires that we turn away from our own way of doing things and turn to him. Now, there are some of us that are experiencing turbulence and it's not our fault, right? This promise is still for us, too. Whether the, the, the lack of peace we're experiencing is of our own making or because of something else that someone is doing to us, the promise is the same. That one day, he is going to make all things new again. That everything that you and I have ever experienced that has caused us grief or loss or pain or suffering, all of that, will be cast into the sea and will be no more. That's the promise. 
the reason why we can have a peace within us that makes no sense is because we have context for the story which tells us that any suffering we endure is not the end. That there is restoration coming. And we get to embody that peace in the world when we receive it for ourselves, when we believe the promises of God and we rest and trust in him, we then get to become the peace that he is. It's like he, he's referred to in this passage in Isaiah and all over the place as, as um, the light of the world, that he is the bringer of light. And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, remember he calls us the light of the world. When we come alongside Christ, we begin to participate in what he is doing. We partner alongside him in the redemption of all things. But if we want to see peace, friends, in a season that we're stepping into this year, that will not have a lot of that in abundance. It won't. It's going to be turbulent. We're going to start seeing the waters rock back and forth. We're going to see the winds blow and beat against the house. The rain's going to come. The streams are going to rise. It's happening. Where is our peace? Where does it come from? Because if it comes from arrogance, if it comes from pride, if it comes from control, it will not be peace. But if it comes from Christ, if it's born out of humility and repentance, we can have a peace which transcends all understanding. We can embody shalom with us. Even though it's not happening everywhere, we can be a light in a dark place. So wherever you're at today, I just want to challenge you. Perhaps there's chaos in your own life that you're experiencing because of what you're doing to yourself. (laughs) We all do this. Perhaps there's areas of life that you're not trusting with God, that you're trying to do your own way. If you want to experience the peace of God, repent. Turn from your own ways. Humble yourself before him, and he is faithful to forgive and to redeem and to reconcile. And then there are those of us who we're, we're doing the best we can. We've, we've examined ourselves. We're bringing ourselves faithfully before God, and we're suffering anyway. That happens too. This peace is also for you. Even though we can't fully see it around us yet, the God who is going to make all things new is right here. He's with you. He's Emmanuel. And he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. So we're going to turn to communion this morning. And if you have yet to make the decision to follow Jesus, to make him the Lord of your life, I'm going to ask that you refrain from participating in this part of the service. Um, We're really glad that you're here. But this is something that we take very seriously. This is something that is reserved only for those who claim that Jesus is the Lord of their life. Because this is the representation of Christ's love poured out for us. This is how all of this works. The only way that we can be brought to peace, the only way that we can have shalom and the redemption and reconciliation of all things is because of what Christ has done on the cross. He took the consequences of the chaos, the death and the suffering and the pain of this world. He took it upon himself and he defeated it by rising again. And he has given to us a gift that we could not have accomplished on our own. And he invites us into that new life.
So when we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we remember that it is only through Christ for us and in us that we see the redemption of the world. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this and remember me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. We're going to take a few minutes to sit and to reflect on the nature of God's peace. And I want you and the Holy Spirit to talk it out. If you feel a lack of peace, if you feel anxiety and turbulence within your heart and mind, bring yourself before God and allow his spirit to minister to you. Holy Spirit, we invite you here and we thank you. And we ask that you would move and speak in your name.